Before we have prayer, I'd like to share a song with you, uh, a song that uh, you can sing with me. It's an echo song. I'm uh, glad to see our resident musician here. I say resident. Um, because you see, I actually teach part-time here at Weimar College. As the folk come in, we're going to share with you a song. And uh, it's an echo song. There are still two seats over, three seats over this side. I think we'll make it. Couple here. And uh, we're going to share with you this echo song. Oh, there are three right here. Oh, the best seats. <laughs> oh, okay. Then we'll have prayer. So. Uh, it's, it's not that hard. All you have to do, well, I'll admit, it is hard. <laughs> because there are a couple places I made it intentionally hard. Uh, David wrote the words, David the psalmist, and uh, I put the music to it, and I made it intentionally difficult because most people think, ah, echo songs, they're easy. So I thought I'd give you a little challenge, and it's a good thing in the morning, it helps to wake you up. Oh, it's a little out of key here. Thy word have I hid, good, deep down in my heart, that I might not sin against thee, my God. Open the mine eyes, that I may behold great things in thy law, so shall I keep it. Continue. I thought you'd get, I told you you're going to get lost. You fulfilled my prediction. But, but this is what's nice about it. Many people have learned to speak while they're listening. Not a good habit, I know. But this time you have to sing while you're listening. So do exactly what I do. There are a few more seats. There are three. The best seats here. I don't know why nobody wants to get close. I know I'm going to step on toes, but uh, not literally, guys. So there's one more seat here. And then uh, those are full. And there are a couple seats here, still two seats over here. All right, we'll do it again. And please, this time, make sure that you sing while you listen. Uh, Hannah, we need some chairs. We got still two seats here. There are, oh, there are chairs back there. Rena, we, we could squeeze a couple in over here. Uh, so there are seats here, ladies. Come over here, there are two. Uh, still seats there and then some guys will bring some chairs in. While they bring it in, let's try it again. And don't get stuck this time. Remember, sing while you listen. Here's another one right up here. All right. Ready? Thy word have I hid. Thy word have I hid. Deep down in my heart. That I might not sin. Against thee, my God. Open the mine eyes, that I may behold great things in thy law, so shall I keep it continually. Good. Thy word is a lamp, a light to my path, the law of thy mouth. I delight myself in thy statutes, O Lord, and rejoice in thy way. Wow, you folk did extremely well. I got a feeling there might be a few of you who heard it before. Anybody heard it and learned it before? Raise your hand. One, two, three, four. Four of you. Wow. <laughs> they, they did. If they carried you, then incredible. We'll do it one more time. We're going to do it at the beginning of every session, but I wanted to teach it to you. For those of you interested, and I've got it here. We can make a photocopy, but you need to let me know that. I've even got the chords written with it. It's simple. It's not hard. And by the end of the time, we've sung it three more times, one at, once at the beginning of each session, which will be the call for us to start. Okay? When you hear the song, you'll know we're going to begin. All right. We'll do it one more time. I like to give people a chance, what I call grace. So we won't start on time the first session. There's always grace involved. Thank God for that. And then every other session, we'll do the song as the call for our time to worship together. One more time. 
Thy word have I hid. Deep down in my heart. That I might not sin. Against thee, my God. Open thou mine eyes. That I may behold. Great things in thy law. So shall I keep it continually. to my path, the law of thy mouth is better than gold. Oh, I love thy law, it's my meditation, I delight myself in thy statutes, O Lord, and rejoice in thy way. Amen. We did that song intentionally, to, not simply because it's a catchy tune, or, but because the words are so very vital and important. Now, can one of you guys bring one of those chairs behind there, this is, or from here, there's a space right here. We wanna, and if you can split those chairs there, if you can put one that side, just in case somebody else comes, here's a spot over here. Okay, you can put one over here, and then split those two, one on either side. So then when anybody else comes, that's fine, I think we might put two more here. Yeah, just bring two more here, we're ready to go. Uh, I found this interesting that even though you were, quote unquote, distracted by the movement of the chairs, and I'm not saying this flatteringly, but this group sang it probably one of the best that I've ever had. Maybe you needed to be distracted. I don't know what it is, but boy, you, you were focused. And uh, praise God for uh, the words from Scripture. Somebody asked me what my name is, how to pronounce it. It's not hard. Uh, if you realize it's a French name, it's in, as in Dupre. Please do pray for me. Okay? So when people speak to me, they say, uh, Pastor Dupre. I say, yes. All right. <laughs> okay? Ah, so let's pause for prayer as we begin right now. Holy Father, we're here in your presence today. Thankful for a beautiful day that you've blessed us with. This Friday, Father, it can be just an ordinary day. It can be a spiritually momentous day, which is what we pray for. May this day indeed bring us closer to Jesus Christ, the living word, as we spend time today in his written word. May we be attentive to the words and may it transform our hearts so that we can be sanctified by your truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. I did tell you I've got sign-up sheets and I was, I'll be honest, I was half hoping, uh, by the way, this is, this is a time we're going to spend in making right decisions and dealing with issues tried with morality and honesty. And I was half hoping that few would show up because then uh, if you don't, if we have a few, I only have to give away a few books. But I'm just uh, kidding about that. I'm so glad to see so many of you here. I'm going to pass around a sign-up sheet. Now, don't sign. Write your name legibly. Would you do that? We'll start here. If you're planning to be for the next this session plus three sessions, I do have a book I will be giving you. It's called Prophetic Principles. It's a 300-page book. Uh, I happen to be the editor. It was done by the Michigan Conference of Seventh Avenue. They are the publisher. Uh, it's a book that uh, deals with very important how, what are the principles of interpreting prophecy? It was a, a seminar we had in 2006 in Michigan. The book was published in September last year. And last month, the Review and Herald Publishing Association voted to distribute it worldwide to all English-speaking ABCs. So you might not even see it in ABC. It was just voted to be done. And the Michigan Conference uh, ABC manager drove down hundreds of books to the Review and Herald. And that book that I showed you last night, I've got uh, enough copies here. Uh, I got about 100, 200 copies of that, which we will give to you if you come to four sessions. And the reason I had that little carrot, if I can use the word, is because I've had too many times in a seminar where people come to session two, they miss the foundation, and they ask questions that have, they, they're totally lost. Or they come to session one, and they think they have the answers, and they don't. They've only got the foundation. 
You need the foundation, you need the walls, you need the roof, and you need the decorations and the, you know, the air condition and all those things, or fresh air, whatever. So you need four parts, and so today I've divided it up into four parts. By the way, in, in essence, it's a 40-hour lecture series I'm gonna do in four hours. So I'm gonna ask you to put your seat belts on, to buckle them up, to make sure your, air, your airbags are working, because we're going to go at warp speed. But we will give you time when the 10 minute uh, hand goes up, that's uh, at about uh, 10.20, we'll start to wind down and any questions of clarification mainly. Because I find that many times in these sem seminars people are ahead, then the questions are for the next session. So mainly clarifications. Because if you're gonna stay for all four, you really won't need to ask real questions towards the end, session four. Well, then we'll have a lot of discussion, okay? And if necessary, lunchtime even, if there are people say, hey, I, I want to be there, uh, I want to talk with you at lunch, I'll be willing to work on that as well. Okay, uh, let me just tell you a short story as that sign-up sheet is going, remember, don't sign, write legibly. There are seats, folks, come right inside. We're just getting going here. Uh, let me share with you a, a, brief, uh, uh, a brief story, by the way. Uh, I, I saw it on 3ABN some years ago. His name was Victor, I've never met him. His name is Victor, and Victor was uh, from Romania. Anybody here from Romania? Oh, okay, we got the Romanians here. Uh, you might even know who this Victor is, but he told his story, and he said when he was in Romania during the years of Ceausescu, he was, uh, he, of course, under serious communism. Uh, by the way, I had a chance to visit Romania after the fall of uh, communism. But uh, under communism, he, he says how he came home on Friday, the end of the first week of his first year in school, grade one. And when he came home, there were two men with his mother. And, his, and they turned to him and they said, Victor, tomorrow, Saturday, you need to go to school. You've got a choice. And one of the men there had a gun. And this is what they said to that little seven or eight-year-old. Come inside, folks. There are two chairs here. There are three seats over here. Join us. This is what they said to that uh, eight-year-old boy. You got a choice, Victor. Either, either you give up this superstitious belief about keeping Saturday and your mother lives. Go to school tomorrow. She'll be okay. Don't show up for school tomorrow and we'll kill your mother. Victor apparently was torn between a simple or a, or a very a choice, very complicated issue, but a simple choice of loving his mother and complete loyalty to his heavenly father. What to do? What to do? I'm not going to tell you the end of the story. I'll keep you hanging towards the end. When Eileen raises her hand, she'll remind me about Victor's story. What happens? Victor's choice. Victor's choice. Fascinating story. I'm going to hand out a questionnaire here to you because I like to do this at the beginning of sessions just to get your juices flowing. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I, I made 30 copies, I, I guess, OE of Little Faith. Rena, would you do me a favor, please? Uh, how many are here altogether? Oh, Hannah, you're probably in our copy machine. Uh, can, can somebody count? Can you count how many we have? And then uh, Hannah will, uh, will go and make more copies. If you can come up here, Hannah, I'll appreciate it. And while she does this, I can just tell you a brief story of myself. Uh, this will date me. Um, in uh, 1968, how many years ago is that? 40, yes, yes, 40 years ago. In 1968, I was a teenager. And I walked into a youth meeting. Back then, we used to call it MV meetings. Anybody remember what MV stands for? Missionary, Missionary volunteers. volunteers. Yeah, okay, some of you show you're dating yourself by that. Ah, that's okay. Um, what did you come up with, Rena? And the double check? 57. 57? Okay, I'm going to ask you to make 40 copies of that. And you know what the number is? Yes, sir. Okay, 40 copies, and she'll come back with that. Thank you so much, Hannah. Um, all right. And I walked into the meeting and there was a, a vibrant debate going on. You see, because this is 19, what did I say? 68. I'm testing you here, 1968. And a book had just come out here in the United States, this book called Situation Ethics, The New Morality, written by a, a priest, a former priest, Joseph Fletcher. And this was a book that came out about 1966, 67, a time of the Cultural Revolution. Anybody heard of the Jesus people, the hippies? 
okay? Now one of the words from the hippie culture has come back. Everybody talks about being cool today. That's from way back then. Uh, keep passing that sheet around, please, so that we can have everybody write your name legibly on it. And if you're here for the four sessions, uh, and we don't uh, count lateness, we'll accept that. That's part of the grace, all right? But that book came up, and that book had, a, had an impact. And I walked into this meeting, and I remember them debating this story. There was a story about a man by the name of Heinz. And they talked about what should Heinz do. Um, uh, it was a real tough question about Heinz, because Heinz, you see, it's a true story as far as I know, and it's, the story is in this book. Situation, Ethics, and New Morality. Heinz's wife, by the way, uh, living in either Germany or Austria, his wife had come down with a very rare kind of cancer. Very rare. But a, a chemist, a druggist, had invented a, a, a new kind of treatment for it, radium treatment, that uh, had, and he concocted a special mix which was reputed to actually help to solve that problem, to cure somebody with a cancer. The only problem was the chemist who created it, who came up with it, was charging about uh, 10 or 20 times the price that it cost him to make it. He was making a huge bundle of money. Heinz went around to different people, his friends and so forth, family, got it to get as much as money as he could, but he only came up with about 50% of what the druggist was charging. Let's say the drug was $2,000, and he came up with $1,000. That was the story. And then Heinz was, went to the chemist and said, listen, I've got 50%. Can you please sell me that uh, drug? I'll pay you the rest. Uh, my wife is dying. I need this treatment very urgently. And the drugger said, no, no, no. I invented it. I'm going to make my money from it. And Heinz then began to reflect and think, what should he do? His wife is dying. He loves his wife. The greedy chemist won't sell the drug. And he began to contemplate breaking in and stealing the drug. And I walked into that MV meeting when that story had just been, was just being told and there was a huge debate amongst the MV members, that is, the youth, thank you, Hannah, the youth uh, who were there. I'll never forget that uh, thing that happened 40 years ago. And that started me on a quest and on a study of what we nowadays refer to as uh, questions regarding how to make proper decisions in life. What should Heinz do? And there was a debate. These were all Seventh-day Adventists. Some said, oh, Heinz should go ahead and steal the drug. That guy is greedy, you know. And then others said, no, 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 he shouldn't. Uh, he's stealing is wrong. But, but his wife's life is at stake. And they went back and forth. And I'll never forget that conversation or discussion or rather heated debates amongst those uh, youth that time. Now, I'm going to hand these out, but I'm going to give it to you upside down. Sam, will you help me here? This side. And uh, what's your name, gentlemen? Casey. Casey, can you help end it on that side? But do it upside down. Uh, human nature being what it is, we all want to start reading. Don't read right now, so it's upside down. Thanks, Casey and Sam. And, and don't look at it yet. This is not the time to look. So as you, as you get that, I, and, and if you don't, um, uh, I need another helper here. Who does not have a pen or a pencil this morning? Raise your hands. Rena, can you help me, please? OK, raise your hands high, pens and pencils. Now, now these are my own pens and pencils. Uh, and this is a session in ethics. You know what that means, folks? <laughs> I am lending this to you, OK? And, and, and by the way, now take the pen and pencil you got that I lend, I'm lending you and scribble on the back to make sure it works. Because I'm not even sure if these work. So, so check out to make sure it works. And if it doesn't work, raise your hand, and we'll exchange it for another one. Uh, as soon as uh, Rena's handed those out, and thanks, Sam and Casey, for your help. Uh, there's some pens and pencils needed over this side. So, um, and I even have a few more in my pocket. So, okay, get those out to people as fast as possible. Remember, check to make sure they work. And as soon as you have them, and everybody has a pen and pencil, everybody has a sheet of paper. Everybody has a sheet of paper. Sam, thank you very much. Uh, sheet of papers, who needs more pay uh, Any questionnaires? Okay, Rena's handing those out. If you want to sit, uh, sir, there's a seat up here. Okay. Okay, I'll tell you when to turn it over. I'm glad um, you, most of you, if not all of you, are still resisting the temptation. That's part of what we're going to be practicing is resisting temptation. Okay. <laughs> all right. Everybody has a pencil and a pen? Okay, good. We are ready. There's back there. Do you need a pencil? Oh, there's one more in the corner. Right in the corner. All uh, right. Uh, as soon as she has that, thank you for your help, folks. Uh, let's turn it over. Now, we're going to go through these together. Otherwise, it takes forever. <laughs> I know this by experience. What would be the right thing to do? That's the question. Now, carefully read the following cases, then answer the questions by circling either yes 
or no. Note, please consider each situation just as described. Imagine you are there. You know why I do say that? Because some people say, oh, I'd never put myself in that situation. Come on, guys. <laughs> okay. Oh, I'll find another option. No, no, no. Imagine it's exactly as described. All right? Just, just take it as it is. Just for the sake of this exercise. Oh, don't put your name on it. You notice? It doesn't say put your name on it. Don't put your name on there. Then choose your most likely response. Now, I'm going to read the questions and we'll give you five seconds to answer either yes or no. So let's go together. Problem. And most of, many of these, if not most of them, are from real situations in life, challenging ones, difficult ones. Question number one, problem. The airplane you are in crashes in a remote, snowbound, mountainous area, killing almost everyone. Miraculously, you survive and find shelter in a part of the plane that remains intact, but soon you run out of food. After not eating anything for many days, you notice that the bodies of fellow passengers have not decomposed due to the frigid temperature. Question. If the only way to stay alive is to eat the flesh of these dead passengers, would it be right to do so? Simply circle yes or no. Don't write me an explanation. Imagine you're in that situation. The answer question, the question is simply, if it's the only way to stay alive is to eat the flesh of these dead animals, would it be right to do so? Would it be right to do so? Yes or no? Okay, question number two. Problem. While living in a communist country, and by the way, I do need to answer all the questions, okay? Take your, you know, if you 49.9% no, that's no. If you 50.0001% yes, that's yes. You get what I'm saying? Okay, just to give me an idea. Circle them. Problem number two. While living in a communist country, you as a Sabbath-keeping Christian are required to send your first grade son to the local state school on the seventh-day Sabbath. This is, we are assuming you're all Seventh-day Adventists. Refusal to do so will result in him being taken away and adopted out into an atheistic family. Question. If you can find no other way to avoid your son being removed from your home, would it be right to send him to school on the Sabbath? Yes or no? Circle either yes or no. By the way, if you change your mind, change it and just scratch out your circle and make another circle. Make, make it clear because I'm going to collect these and during lunchtime, I'm going to collate them and bring you the answers after lunch as to where, uh, who said, you know, how many percent said this, how many percent said that. Now, majority doesn't rule in morality, you know that. But I want you to get a feel of how you did answer it. And we'll do that after lunch, the answers. Number three, problem. You're living in a country that has just been invaded. Enemy soldiers are killing civilians. To fight is to take human life, yet not to fight is to let human life be unjustly taken. Question, would it be right to join the military as a combatant so as to fight and drive the invaders out? Fight and kill, understood. Yes or no? Yes or no? Question number four. Problem. At the end of a series of evangelistic meetings in an African country, a Muslim civic leader and his family come forward and all request to be baptized and to join the, the church. But this Muslim has four legal wives and nine children, ages 12 through 20. Question. Considering the potential hardships for the wives and children if they are abandoned, would it be right to baptize them all? since they got into the practice of polygamy before they heard of the biblical ideal of monogamy. Monogamy, one husband, one wife, yes or no? The question, would it be right to baptize them all to avoid the hardships since they got into polygamy before they heard about the biblical ideal of monogamy? Question number five. You live in Holland during the Second World War. Some innocent Jews fleeing certain death come to your house for protection. You take them in and care for them. Later, some of Hitler's soldiers arrive at your door and ask whether you have Jews at your home. Question, would it be right to lie to these soldiers to save the lives of these innocent Jews? Yes or no? That's one of the quintessential questions, the ones that, off, that comes at almost everywhere in these issues. Number six, problem. A gang of robbers has struck your community and are even killing innocent people. One night, 
You are aroused by the sound of these armed burglars breaking into your house. From where you are, you can easily shoot them with the gun your brother forgot at your house. You know why I said that? I had people say, I'd never have a gun in my house, so I had to find a brother who forgot the gun in the house. Because I have to keep tweaking these things because everybody's got some kind of way to get out of it. You can get out of it this time, okay? <laughs> with the, would you shoot them with a gun, okay? From where you are, you can easily shoot them with a gun your brother forgot at your house. Question, would it be right to kill these robbers to defend and protect your family? Yes or no? Question number seven. You moved to Russia after communism collapses to raise up Christian churches. Due to nationwide corruption, it soon becomes evident that virtually all the building materials being sold have been stolen. Question, in order to stabilize the developing congregations, would it be right to use these stolen materials to construct much needed churches? Yes or no? By the way, I was in Russia 13 years ago. That was one of the issues. <laughs> okay, as I said, these are real issues that, that are difficult ones intentionally because when we push each other to the extreme, we know where we really stand. Number, number eight. You're, you're saying that all material that's available. That's what I said. All the material that's available. All, I said the ALL, all the building material sold, it has been stolen. Okay, would it be right to use this? Number eight. As an SDA, you are drafted during wartime and sign up as a medic. The military law prohibits you from treating any wounded enemy, whether soldiers or civilians, and requires you to wear camouflage gear and to go on all patrols as a vital part of the morale and safety of the troops. Question, would it be right to do this as a loyal citizen? Yes or no? Take the question as it stands, yes or no. We're going fast intentionally because many times you have to make a snap decision. When you are faced with things, you don't always have a half an hour to think about it, to go back to the Bible. I'm trying to see where you are in your right, uh, right now as you're feeling, as you're thinking from your own belief. Number nine, problem. Your 12-year-old daughter becomes pregnant after being molested by a relative. Health professionals point out that your daughter is not stable mentally or emotionally and that she might not survive the pregnancy. If she does, they predict that the baby will be terribly deformed. Question, would it be right to consent for your daughter to have an abortion? Yes or no? Number 10, problem. As a pastor, you have been asked by your older Seventh-day Adventist brother if you would be willing to perform his wedding to a fine Baptist lady. Since it has become quite clear that to turn down this request will alienate your brother and his bride-to-be as well as their entire Baptist family, would it be right to officiate at this marriage ceremony for this Christian couple? Yes or no? That's you as a pastor to marry the Adventists to the Baptists. Number 11, problem. Since you are an only child, you make a solemn vow to support your aged parents. Then you are unjustly arrested and put in a hard labor camp. A friendly guard offers you false identity papers to help you escape. Question, if there is no chance of being caught, I put that in because some people said, I'd take it if I wouldn't be caught. Okay. If there is no chance of being caught, would it be right to use these forged documents to escape so you can keep your solemn pledge and care for your desperately needy Parents, yes or no? And finally, problem number 12. Some Christians in a communist country have requested that you smuggle in several much-needed Bibles. The only way you can do this successfully is to have a false bottom built into your suitcase to hide the Bibles. Question, would it be right to use this method to fool the authorities and thus get the Word of God to these spiritually hungry souls? Yes or no? Yes or no? Has everybody put your name on this legibly? 
Remember, hopefully you didn't sign it, you put it unlegibly. And during the second session, we'll pass out another sheet, and the third, and then the fourth, and we'll have somebody collate that for us. Now, could those folk who handed them out and the pencils get the pencils back? Um, unless you need the pencil to take notes, if you want to take notes, that's okay. We can uh, have you, trust you to hand it in later on, pencils and pens. But if you want to return the pencils and pens, you're not going to take notes, but hand these sheets in. Again, if Hannah and whoever else, Rena, if you can collect these sheets for me as fast as possible. Uh, any, any, then, any ones that have not been used, I think I've got the pile here. And then uh, I'd appreciate it. Thanks, Casey. Let's get moving on that. I will then collate this during lunch, part of lunchtime today. While you have a break, I will be collecting this material and getting an idea of um, how you answered these questions. And while you do that, while you collect those, very interesting things that have been happening, by the way, uh, just so that you are aware, uh, in case you're not. How many of you are not from California? Raise your hands. Anybody not from California? One. Well, I mean, who are not living here right now? Who is not living here? Ah, we've only got three people, four people who are not living in California. All right. Thank you. Uh, well, if you haven't heard, uh, this state, this state of California, which incidentally, thank you, the state of California, are you aware, the economy of this state is larger than the economy of Canada. This is a huge state. You know, one-eighth of the people in the United States live in this state. And it's only one of 50. Imagine that. This is a huge state. So whatever happens in California has a major impact all over the place. And this state just recently, this month, in fact, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I was, uh, was it last week? I was down here in the San Francisco Chronicle, June 17, which is 10 days ago. Front page, June 17. Did anybody see this? San Francisco Chronicle. I never thought it would happen in our lifetime. You get that? You know what this means? Does anybody not know what this means? I never thought it would happen in our lifetime. You know what that means? This is the celebration here of a couple who had two women who had been living together for 55 years. 55 years. They're in their 80s. Oh, yeah. They're. <laughs> Thanks, sorry about that. Yeah, this is the San Francisco Chronicle. <laughs> We're going to talk about some of those things. I didn't buy the newspaper. I found it free. I was thankful for that. Ah, here's the couple who tie the knot. Incidentally, here it is. Couple, couple tie the knot after 55 years. Two people in their 80s. Two women in their 80s. Two women in their 80s. Ah. Yes, and you can see the, the back also is obviously, this is not a Christian magazine, <clears throat> by all means. Uh, and of course, the whole issue here has become front and center. What and how should we as Christians at Seventh Avenue respond to these issues? We want to spend some time in the next uh, three and a half lectures just on these very difficult issues. And you know what? It's not only out there. I got two friends of mine. They are in their 60s when this happened. One friend was going to celebrate, I believe it was her 60th birthday a few years ago, and uh, her, her husband was not around. So her, her lady friend came to her, and the lady friend was married at one stage to a pastor. This lady friend said, hey, let's go out on, uh, and celebrate your birthday. I said, well, uh, uh, what are you going to do? Well, let's go on a boat ride, and I'll take you out to lunch. They're both Seventh-day Adventists, both in their 60s. And they're not living out here on the West Coast. Some of you think, ah, California. No, 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 no. This is, this is out in Michigan, okay? Just to give you a picture, because people always think, uh, the, the West Coast. Oh, hold on, hold on. And the other one said, but my birthday is on Sabbath. And her lady friend, who had been married to a pastor for years, said, come on, don't be a legalist. Wow. Don't be a legalist. Interesting. That's inside the church. How do we respond when our friends call us legalists? You got your Bibles with you? Let's take it out. Okay, a well-known passage. Just to remind you, by the way. Oh, incidentally, uh, that book. As you open your Bibles, I'd like to give some resources. This book called Situation Ethics, The New uh, Morality, uh, which was not ethics, a situation nonsense. But there was a book that came out years ago by an Adventist called Faith, Hope, and Clarity. I loved it. <laughs> Not Faith, Hope, and Charity. Unfortunately, it's out of print. It's the only book that was really published on ethics by the Adventist Church. 
Faith, Hope, and Clarity. And uh, we've had it republished. I spoke with the author and got permission and so forth. We had it republished at Southern, and it's still being used at Southern Adventist University as a book, as a textbook on ethics. You took it? Yeah. I, I, I contacted the author and he gave us permission. I was teaching at Southern Gordon Kiner, K-A-I-N-E-R. And um, with his permission, we reprinted it and he said, I'll do it free. And we sent him like, you know, a little royalty anyway, just to thank him for allowing us to redo that. And I'm glad to hear it's still being used at Southern. Uh, I was at Southern 92 through 97. So, but unfortunately, there's been no real good response to those uh, issues. And so, uh, unfortunately, we're sitting in a situation right now where even amongst Adventists, one Adventist is calling the other Adventist a legalist. And not too long ago, I won't tell you one because some of you are, who are very good will go and try and find this out, but I'll just say there were two Seventh-day Adventist evangelists. How did I know about it? Because I have people, friends of mine who email me, what about this, what about that? They keep me on my toes. And two Seventh-day Adventist evangelists in a television program were talking about faithfulness to the law of God. And then they came up with, some of these, with one of these difficult issues. They first said we should obey God completely. And then when it came to a difficult issue, they said, well, you know, uh, that's a difficult issue. And, and God looks at the heart. God doesn't look at the actions, basically, because it's a difficult issue. And this guy wrote to me, he said, check it out. And I read it. I printed this stuff off, I watched the program, I listened to it, I couldn't believe it. Two Adventist evangelists who said, in essence, that it is right to lie. Yes. And this is in this century. <laughs> okay? These are serious things. That's not just out there. I started with out there with that newspaper, front and back unintentionally, and showing you what's happening out there, but it's happening right here in the Adventist church. So what do we do? Let's go to our Bibles. What's the, what's the verse that we often use when we challenge other people to be willing to keep the seventh-day Sabbath regardless of situations? We say, if you what? Love me. John 14. Let's go to that verse. Because in our session here, one of the things I want to by God's grace, repeatedly do, is go and look at what Jesus teaches us. And you know why it's important? Because <laughs> uh, I remember when I was uh, getting into this, I started studying these issues, and I went to my uncle. And he'd studied at Andrews years before. Go to John 14, 15, by the way. And my uncle, I had great admiration for, and I went back to South Africa, and I said, Uncle Ingram, look at what I found. I'm all excited about this stuff. And he wasn't interested. I couldn't believe it. Here's an educated man. He's got a doctoral degree, and he doesn't want to listen to me. Two, three years later, I went back to him, and I shared the same information, but I shared it in a Christ-centered context. And my uncle was all excited and saying, Amen. And I said, Uncle Ingram, what happened? Why did you change? He looked at me and said, No, I didn't change. You did. I never forgot that. Instead of me sharing this in a legalistic manner, which I had done the first time, and my uncle didn't like what I was sharing, by God's grace, I began to share all of this stuff in a Christ-centered context, and he was all excited. <laughs> so let's go back to the Bible and see what Jesus teaches us. John 14, verse 15. Now, I'm using the New King James Version here. In fact, uh, in our next session, I'm going to talk about briefly five minutes or so Bible versions, because that's question that always comes up, because we're going to talk about interpreting the Bible for how to live daily. So be here for our second session. I'm going to give you some examples, but I'm using this as my study Bible. John chapter 14, verse 15, the words of Jesus. If you love me, what? Keep my commandments. Now, I know the modern translations even say, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I actually like that. It's an automatic response. <laughs> Isn't that exciting? If you love me, you will keep it. Okay, let's go to another verse as we lay the foundation here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I want you to go to verse 14. Now, I know the King James has an old English word. I haven't heard anybody use it in the last 20 years. Uh, in their normal speech. So we're going to use a modern translation and give you even more modern translations of that word. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. The King James says, The love of Christ, what? Constraineth us. How many of you have used the word constraineth in the last year? I don't see it. Okay, so why do I use the New King James? For the love of Christ compels us. Get it? Compels. Okay? Or the New American Bible, the love of Christ impels us. Uh, the New Revised Standard Version, the love of Christ urges us on. Ah, there it is. The love of Christ 
urges us on. The love of Christ motivates us. Now, somebody says, oh, that's the New Testament. You know, this is interesting. By the way, how many of you went to an Adventist school or a Christian school or at home and you memorized the Ten Commandments? Whatever uh, translation, doesn't matter. Whatever, raise the hands high. I want to see the of you. I don't say you remember it now, but raise them high. That's 90% of you memorized the Ten Commandments. I did the same. You know what's interesting? Sometimes you memorize it, but you don't actually catch some of the the power in it. So go with me to Exodus, because we were just reading now. Uh, we'll go to Exodus 20, where the Ten Commandments are. We just mentioned to you the love of Christ impels us, motivates us, urges us on, compels us. Okay? If you love me, keep my commandments. And I had memorized the Ten Commandments, and about 30 years after I memorized it, I suddenly saw what was there. I'd never noticed it, because we often use Jesus' words, and that's right, in John 14, verse 15, and then I came across Exodus 20, and I read this in verse 6. I couldn't believe it. Right there. But showing mercy to thousands to those who keep my commandments. Is that what the Bible says? To those who what? Love me and keep. Now, it's interesting. Right there in the heart of the Ten Commandments is the proper sequence. Did you notice that? What comes before keeping the commandments? Love. It's in the commandments. And to me, that was exciting. I said, I'm, I'm, I'm sure many of you already noticed that. But I didn't notice it. Even though I'd memorized it, I just said, to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments, I hadn't noticed the important sequence. God doesn't say, I show mercy to those who keep the commandments, because that's legalism. I show mercy to those who what? Love, love me and keep my commandments. Now, take your pen and pencil, if you have one there, and write down the word legalist. Uh, Yes, legalist. Write the word down. Legalist. How many letters? Eight. Eight. Correct. Legalist. Have you written it down? Now notice, I suggest that we as Seventh Adventists, when we have been accused of being a legalist, we should tell people, you know what, you got that word 75% right. 75% right. If there are eight letters, how many letters are wrong? Mathematicians? Two. Two letters are wrong. Ah. So people say, you're a legal say, you got the word 75% right. You missed the second letter. It's not an E. It's an O. Change the second letter to an O. You see, it looks like an O, by the way. E, an E can be mistaken for an O very easily. Correct? It's not an E. It's an O. And then the G, uh, you made another mistake. It looks like a G, but it's not a G. It's a what? It's a Y. Ah, what are we, Seventh-day Adventists? Loyalists. Again, what are we? Loyalists. Loyalists. So by the way, you go over and say, I agree with you, only 75%. There are two letters that you didn't get because you see, Jesus says, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. So that's what you must keep in mind. And, and yes, motives are important, very, very important. But the problem is, who really knows what the motives are? Let me give you an illustration of that. I know of a real illustration. It happened at one ministry somewhere on planet Earth. I won't tell you where. <laughs> it happened at the ministry on planet Earth in the last 10 years. There was a certain person who was in trouble with the law. This person, a Seventh-day Adventist. This person knew that this was a serious case because the person not only had committed a crime, but had also tried to get out of it. So what did the person do? decided to donate a lot of money to an independent ministry and then called the independent ministry repeatedly saying, when are you going to publish this? When are you going to put this out? So that, why? Why do you think they were used or she was trying to get this out? So that she or he could look good. When the case comes before the judge, it's already public knowledge. It is spread all over. This person has donated so much money, tens of thousands of dollars to this ministry. Very interesting. Who alone knows what our motives are? God. Okay? Very interesting. So we, the issue of motives is important, but nobody really knows what our motives are. We've got five minutes here. And we'll uh, uh, take time for questions in a few minutes. But uh, we're going to talk about motives a little more here. But you see, sometimes we look at people and we say, oh, it's only the motive that matters. But is it really only the motive? 
Uh, we've looked at Exodus chapter 20, by the way. If you have time, you must read the book of Deuteronomy. I did this one day, and it was fascinating. I didn't realize that, by the way, the book of Deuteronomy. Does anybody know what Deuteronomy means? Second law. Second law. Deuter, second. Ronomy, uh, nomos, the second book of the law, Deuteronomy. But as I went to Deuteronomy, I was shocked to see how many times the concept comes up. For example, Deuteronomy, just write these references down. 9 verse 4, I pray to the Lord my God, etc. Uh, who shows mercy to those who love Him and those who keep His commandments. Deuteronomy 7 verse 9, showing mercy to a thousand generations of those who love God and keep His commandments. So that's chapter 9, verse 4, chapter 7, verse 9, chapter 11, verse 13. says, love the Lord your God and serve Him. That's 11, 13. 11, 22, love the Lord and walk according to His ways. Okay? Over and over you have love, walk, love, serve, love, keep. It's fascinating. So I eventually came up with a new title for the book of Deuteronomy. I now call it the book of Deuteragape. Did you get that? Deuteragape. Why do I say Deuteragape? Second book of? Love, yes. Because few, I didn't realize it. The Bible repeatedly talks about love before you obey. Loving obedience is what it's all about. Now, let me share with you uh, a personal experience. Okay? I was raised in a Seventh Avenue home. And um, one of the things, uh, I mean, from South Africa, uh, we were raised in a very macho culture. Uh, men don't do certain things. One of the things men don't do, generally, is wash the dishes. And I had a very good example in that from my father. <laughs> These men don't wash the dishes. Just, no, it's a woman's job. Now, again, I'm talking about South Africa 30 years ago, all right? Don't, uh, don't say it's not the way in South Africa. Yeah. So when my mom wanted me to do the dishes, I didn't want to do it. I was in my 20s back then. I, I thought, how do I get out of this? How do we? And I said, oh, mom, I can't do the dishes. Why not? It's going to spoil my youth ministry. She said, what? Spoil your youth ministry. Back then, I was involved in youth ministry. I said, yes, you see, Mom, I play the guitar. And you'll notice I play it, uh, you know, just with my bare fingers. And if I wash the dishes, back then, some of you might remember in the olden days, we used to put our hands in water. And we used to wash with soap. Anybody remember those days? Yeah. And what happens if you've got a lot of dishes and you've got pots to scrape? What happens to your fingers? They become what? They become real soft. And when they become soft, all the calluses from playing the guitar wear away, and it becomes very painful and difficult to play the guitar so I could do youth ministry. <laughs> and guess what? I got out of doing the dishes. <laughs> I did. I did. And later on, my mom asked me to teach her to play the guitar, which I did. And she found out that as she learned to play, when she tried to put her hose on, guess what happened to the hose? They tore, and I almost said amen because it validated my point, but I didn't like the fact that her hose got runners in. But, you know, but the thing is true. If you play the guitar, it hardens your fingers. But I tried every possible way to get out of doing the dishes. All right, guess what? I got married. <laughs> Need I say more? How many of you are not married? Raise your hands. Okay, I'll say more. See, when you get married, when you get married and you love your spouse <laughs> and your spouse says to you, honey, with that nice ring in her, to in her tone, gentlemen, you're listening, uh, would you do the dishes for us today? What are you going to say? Mm, by the way, the, the, the marriage license doesn't say that. The marriage license has a few requirements that tell you a few things, you know, but dishes. Guess, guess what, folks? Guess who does 80% of the dishes at home now? I do. My wife does the dishes on weekends. Uh -huh. Now, now I'll, I'll give you one more admission. I don't do the dishes because I love the dishes. I still hate doing the dishes. Do you know why I do the dishes? Because I love my wife. Are you listening? There are times we do things not because we love doing the thing. We do it because we love the one who asked us to do us. You follow that? Aha. Uh -huh. Very, very important. Very important. We do it because we love God. I saw the hands of those who are not married. Now, anybody brave enough here who wants to raise his or her hand and uh, who is in a serious, healthy relationship, dating, uh, engaged, uh, raise your hands. Anybody? One, two. Only two of you. I'll talk to the two of you. The rest of you can listen in. And I know they're not engaged to each other, okay? But they are engaged. Um, the, some years ago, 
I came to the United States from South Africa. And when I left there, I left a young lady behind. And so uh, I missed her, as, as would be understood. And so I began to sit down and write a letter to her. Now, I sent her a postcard every week, but I began to write her a long letter. And it took a while. And I wrote the letter, 10 pages, 20 pages, 30 pages, 40 pages, 50 pages, 60 pages. And I still kept writing to her regular, on a regular basis. But as time went on, oh, are we going to get some air con here? Wonderful. Thank you. In our next session, we'll have air conditioning, OK? I kept writing the letter. When I stopped writing the letter, I did mail it. Now, I sent her regular letters. But when I stopped writing the letter, the letter was 120 pages long. She got the letter. We were dating seriously. She got the letter. What do you think she did when she got the letter? Threw it in the garbage? Put it on the shelf? What did she do? She read it. A long letter. Friends, God has given us a long love letter. A long, long love letter. And there are some things in here that I might never understand fully. But guess what? I will do it. Why? Because I love the one who wrote the love letter. Motives are very dangerous. Yes, we should have proper motives. OK, is it coming through already? It's starting? OK, we'll shut the door. We'll see if we can get a balance here. It's coming. OK, save that cool air. Motives are very suspect. Uh, if there are more lights to turn on, I'd appreciate it. Can you see if we can there, since we got less lighting now? Uh, press it. Oh, yeah, OK. Open the blinds. Good, you can get some more light if you need it. Uh, motives are suspect. I'll tell you one story, and then we'll open up for questions of clarification. I was a student at, at Andrews University uh, some years ago, and I'll never forget, I was walking down the street, Walnut Avenue, and I was on my way to, to a class. And I had with me an umbrella, because in, at Andrews University during the fall, you better have an umbrella. And as I was walking down the road, sure enough, suddenly it began to rain. And I was so proud of myself. I had my umbrella. I popped it open. I was walking down the street. But I looked ahead of me, and I saw an elderly lady, probably in her 70s, walking down the street with no umbrella. What do you think my first instinct was? To run up to her and help her, share my umbrella. So I started to run. And as I started to run, Remember, I was a student at Andrews University. I was a single student. I was an unsponsored student at Andrews University, struggling to pay my fees. And as I began to run towards the lady, suddenly into my head popped one or two stories I had heard from very sincere storytellers uh, in church about a little girl who gave a man a drink of water when he came by her house one day. She gave him a glass of cold water. And when he died, he bequeathed to her a million bucks. <laughs> ah. And so as I was running towards the lady with my umbrella, guess what flashed through my mind? <laughs> One of those stories. And I thought, hey, what if she's an elderly woman? What if she's got a lot of money? And what if I share my umbrella with her, and then she dies later on? And in her will, she bequeaths all of my tuition worries will be over. And, and, and I stopped dead in my tracks. I thought, that's the wrong motive. Evil heart. How can, I, how can I think of doing that? And I stopped, and I thought, no way. And then I looked, and she's getting wet. And I'm thinking, Sherry umbrella. And I said, no, wrong motive. Sherry umbrella, wrong motive. And there I was, <laughs> you know, in this, in this internal, internal struggle of what? Doing the right thing, but with the wrong motive. What do I do? Lord, help me. Ah, open your Bibles to John, James chapter 4, verse 17. Ah, and the lady got wet, by the way. Yeah, that's the sad end of the story. She got wet, and I didn't get any money. <laughs> Well, you know what I mean. I don't even know if she was wealthy. I don't even know if she's passed away yet. But the problem is, motives are very dangerous. Are you with me? When people say, oh, I've got the right motive. Oh, when I read my Bible, look at James 4, verse 17. Oh, folks, very interesting. As I read that verse, it's fascinating. Therefore, James 4, 17, to him who knows to do good and has the right motive. Is that what the Bible says? Ah, to him who knows to do good and does not do it. To him it is what? Sin. Is there anything said about motive there? No. no. 
In other words, we're talking about how to make right decisions. In other words, do what is right, regardless of the motive. Write this down. That's what James 4.17 says. Do what is right, regardless of the motive. And beg God to change our evil hearts. Okay. Because the heart is what? Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. Deceitful above all things and what? Desperately wicked. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. So don't come up with the idea, oh, my heart's not in it, and if your heart's not in it, don't do it. I don't know where I learned that heathen idea. If your heart's not in it, don't do it. No, no. If it's the right thing to do, even if you're in the dormitory and you hate the rules, but you know it's the right thing to do, do it. And have the Lord change and transform your evil, my evil heart. And the woman got wet. Uh -huh. Yes. Do it till you get it right, yes. And, and that's the same idea with the heart. Do it, but do it, let God change your heart. Oh, very interesting. Any questions of clarification? Any questions here? And I'm going to round off. You've gotten all the texts you needed, all the passages. This is just our introduction. We do need love. We need to be motivated by love. Two things I'm pointing out in this session. Motivated by love. But even if you have the wrong motivation, what? Do it and ask God to do what? Change your heart. Did you write those two points down? You must be motivated by love, but even if you have the wrong motivation, what? Do it, if you know it's the right thing to do, and pray for God to do what? To change your heart. Elder R.H. Pearson, former, former, former General Conference President, said these words. We've got three minutes here to round off. The servant of the Lord says, quoting Ellen White, fearful perils are before those who bear responsibility in the Lord's work. Perils of thought which make me tremble. Okay? And then he appeals to uh, the people. This is in one of his last sermons, Elder R.H. Pearson. Then he quotes Ellen White. God calls for men and women who are prepared to meet emergencies, men who in a crisis will not be found standing on the wrong side. Ellen White continues, we are pressed onto the final conflict. This is no time for compromise. It is no time to hide your colors. When the battle wages soar, let no one turn traitor. It is no time to lay down or conceal our weapons and give Satan the advantage in the warfare. Okay, and then I call attention to a vision that Ellen White had, this is R.H. Pearson says, in which she saw a ship heading toward an iceberg. She said, there towering high above the ship was a gigantic iceberg. An authoritative voice cried out, meet it. There was not a moment's hesitation. It was a time for instant action. The engineer put on full steam and the man at the wheel steered the ship straight into the iceberg. With a crash, she, the ship, struck the ice. There was a fearful shock and the iceberg broke into many pieces, falling with a, like a noise uh, of thunder onto the deck. The passengers were violently shaken by the force of the collisions, but no lives were lost. The vessel was injured, but not beyond re repair. She rebounded from the contact, trembling from stern to stern like a living creature. Then she moved forward on her way. Ellen White says, well, I knew the meaning of this representation. I had my orders, she says. I had heard the words like a voice from our captain, meet it. I knew it was my duty, what my duty was, and that there was not a moment to lose. The time for decided action had come. I must, without delay, obey the command, meet it, had selected messages Volume 1, 205-206. 1 SM, 205-206. And then on page 391, what a wonderful thought it is that the great controversy is nearing its end. In the closing work, we shall meet with perils that we know not how to deal with. But let us not forget that the three great powers of heaven are working, that the divine hand is on the wheel, and that God will bring his purposes to pass. He will gather from the world the people who will serve him in righteousness. In our last minute here, what did Victor do? Faced with the two men, one with a gun who said, if you don't go to school on Saturday, we're going to shoot and kill your mother. Give up your superstitious ideas of keeping the Sabbath. Go to school, save your mother's life. His mother turned to him and said, Victor, eight years of age, Victor, you make the decision. How many mothers, how many mothers here who have, tra who have trained the children so well that you are, are in God's care, you say, you make the decision. That's what his mother said. You know what you should do. You make the decision. Wow. 
What a traumatic decision for an eight-year-old boy. Victor made his decision. He said, I cannot be unfaithful to my father, God. He refused to go to school on Sabbath. Wow. Complete loyalty to whom? To God. Remember what it says in Revelation 14, verse 12? Here are they who keep the what? Commandments of God and the testimony of the faith of Jesus. That's right, Revelation 14, verse 12. M miraculously, mercifully, God intervened and his mother was not shot. Now, I've got some stories I'm going to share with you later on of people who died. But this one, his mother was not shot. And guess what? For the rest of his education, all of the time he was in Romania, Victor never again faced that challenge of going to school on Sabbath. He stood for the right of the heaven's fall as an eight-year-old child. That's my challenge to you. God bless you.